From Sage Magazine, you're listening to Habitations. I'm Noah Sokol. As a species, how do we plan to face the grim realities that human-induced climate change is going to exert on the planet and on human civilization over the next several decades? My guest, Roy Scranton, argues that solutions like getting a more fuel-efficient car or even being a citizen of a country that signs an international climate agreement does not really address the deeper problem. According to Scranton, the problem that demands our attention most right now is actually, at its core, a philosophical one. He believes that we have to accept that our carbon-fueled industrial civilization is now effectively dead, and therefore what we humans really need to do is to learn as a civilization how to die. To do so, he says our best tools are not those of science or engineering. Instead, we should look to philosophy and the humanities. Scranton quotes the philosopher Montaigne, who says, to philosophize is to learn how to die. Roy Scranton developed this idea in an essay he wrote for the New York Times in 2013 that went viral called Learning How to Die in the Anthropocene, which he later expanded into a short book by a similar name. For those unfamiliar with the term Anthropocene, it refers to a new geological epoch in Earth's history where human beings are considered a dominant geological force that is fundamentally shaping the planet. In his book, Scranton draws on his experience as a private in the U.S. Army during the 2003 invasion of Iraq, where he faced the very real possibility of his own death every day as the lead Humvee driver in a convoy running IED patrols. His way of coming to terms with his death was informed by his reading of the famous 18th century Japanese samurai manual, the Hagakure, which commands that meditation on one's own death should be performed daily to overcome fear of death and to gain freedom. Scranton says this time, however, we need to learn how to die not as individuals, but as a civilization. If we can learn to accept the death of our civilization in its current form, we can then, quote, get down to the hard work of adapting with mortal humility to our new reality. Roy Scranton is also the author of the 2016 novel War Porn and has written for publications like Rolling Stone, The Nation, and The New York Times. He holds a PhD in English from Princeton University and is currently an assistant professor of creative writing at the University of Notre Dame. We spoke in September. Roy Scranton, welcome to Habitations. Thanks, and thanks for having me. You begin your book, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, um, while you were a private in the U.S. Army. And you start by describing some pretty vivid imagery of what Baghdad looked like to you as you were driving a Humvee, which was your job. So can you just start by describing what the city looked like and felt like to you during that time? What I wrote in the book was uh, driving into Iraq. I felt like driving into the future. Part of what I meant by that was the way that Iraq in 2003, in in April and May 2003, uh, looked like a, something out of a Mad Max film. Um, there was broken and, and destroyed military machinery all over the place. It was a desert, of course. There were, there were fires burning everywhere. There was oil. There was uh, refugees and, and um, frightened people. And then when we got to Baghdad, it what was most striking about Baghdad was that it was a fully, it was a modern city. It's a modern city uh, with a expressways and, uh, you know, there had been some, you know, there were a few malls, 
then, like giant shopping centers. Uh, there are many more malls there now, but um, it, it looked like a modern city, but a modern city that, you know, as if it had been dropped <laughs> from a great height and uh, just in pieces. Uh, it was an incredible thing to see uh, and to um, to be in. I'm just curious a bit about your decision to enlist in the U.S. Army. Um, if I'm right, did you you dropped out of college initially right after your your freshman year? I, I think I read. Is that is that right? That's right. I dropped out of college in 90, 1995, I think, um, after my freshman year for a variety of reasons. Uh, um, not the least of which being that I just didn't really have the skills for it. It was several years then working in food service, working for the Pergs, uh, you know, going door to door for groups like the Sierra Club. Um, I was a phone psychic. I was a driver. I sold footlong hot dogs with a traveling hot dog stand based out of Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Um, I was a dishwasher in a Benihana restaurant. I just did a bunch of like, you know, various jobs to to pay the bills while I while I wrote a lot, a lot of woodshedding in those years and read and taught myself whatever I could um, and wound up, you know, through circumstance uh, in Moab, Utah in 2000, 2001. And there was sort of like three events, one after another, that I had sort of, I that my plan then at the at the wise old age of 24, 25 was like, I was just going to um, settle out in the desert and just write poetry the rest of my life and work some, some I was working at a bookstore and a, and a coffee shop. And I was just going to do that for the rest of my life. That was my plan. And then a friend died there in Moab. And I had a bike accident and broke my face, broke a tooth in half and uh, ripped up my, my lip and couldn't afford to get my teeth fixed because uh, I didn't have health insurance. Um, and I was working, you know, minimum wage jobs. And then September 11th happened. And I decided at that point to go back to Oregon, where I grew up, and found myself living in my mom's basement, uh, unable to find a job, um, just sort of in this really gloomy, you know, it was like November, December, really gloomy time. And it was in the post 9-11 moment, which was a very strange moment across the country, it seemed. Um, and I joined the Army. I decided I would, I would join the Army. So let's fast forward from that decision now back to you being in Iraq um, during this time of, of great tumult and chaos uh, in the city, which you were describing before. In your book, you write that your way of dealing with the sort of imminent sense of death that surrounded you was to read the uh, 18th century Japanese text, famous Japanese text called the Hagakure, the Samurai Manual. So can you describe a bit what that manual, that text is about and why you were reading it? So that summer in Iraq uh, in 2003, we were doing it. We were on an operation called Iron Bullet. And we our, our mission was to drive around and pick up unexploded ordnance. We were picking up white phosphorus and mortar rounds and artillery rounds and rockets and all kinds of things. And we'd, we'd go to a site and uh, we would work with uh, local nationals 
uh, work t- local national work teams to uh, load all the ordnance onto the back of our trucks, and then we would drive across town and pray that it didn't explode or that we didn't get blown up by an ID or get shot or whatever, uh, and then dump it somewhere else. Um, and sometimes we'd explode it. We we de- detonated in place. Other times, uh, sometimes you know, part bits of it would explode. So I was the most dangerous thing in those in those days, aside from. You know the UXO we were dealing with exploding where it was IEDs. That was the the threat we were on we were under, and I drove the battery commander, so I was in the lead Humvee of the convoy usually, and I was terrified. Um, I was terrified that I would get blown up or that or that I would miss an IED while we're out on patrol, and someone else would get blown up, and it would be my fault. Um, and you know, I'm, I was terrified, but I did my job. I would go out and drive, but it, over over time, it just wore on me and, and wore on me more and more. And um, it was finally through uh, sort of thinking about thinking about the Hagakure and reflecting on it, um, which I'd encountered the book um, before a couple years before through uh, Jim Jarmusch's film Ghost Dog: Way of the Samurai. And I'm a I'm a big Jim Jarmusch fan. And I remembered that book. So when I was in Iraq and, and uh, you know, um, got a copy of it and, and read it. And, and in that book, uh, Yamamoto Tsunetomo argues that um, he says that the, the way of the samurai is found in death and that meditation should be performed on inevitable death daily. Um, you know, you should think about being ripped apart by dogs and pierced by arrows and falling from a thousand foot cliffs and dying of disease and committing seppuku with the death of one's master and so on and so on. And that by by doing this, by thinking of oneself as already dead, um, you achieve freedom to act in the moment. Um, you know, so it's a basic, the basic idea is a kind of detachment, right, from from the ego and and its persistence in in the moment that gives you that helps ease that all that anxiety and uh frees you up uh to to do whatever you need to do and so i i started doing that you know every day before we'd go out on patrol or go out on our on our iron bullet mission i would like have my little meditation and uh, can you describe some of the meditation like what were some of the forms <laughs> of death that you i would imagine Getting blown up or um, getting run over by a tank or uh, being ripped apart by dogs. Um, I'd imagine uh, um, being hit with an RPG, um, getting uh, kidnapped and beheaded. Um, so I'm just curious, what did your fellow soldiers think? Did you <clears throat> tell them that you did this? No. <laughs> that, was, that was just me, just for myself. So when you re- you returned from Iraq, you were still in the U.S. Army, but you described seeing the scenes of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, right? And drawing some parallels between what you were seeing in New Orleans versus what you saw in Baghdad, right? Uh, as I as I write in the book, it's yeah, I saw the same, and I was, I was just watching Katrina on on television. So I was stationed in Oklahoma at the time. And my unit was put on alert for riot control operations, and we did some training, and we were prepped to go down there. So it felt very vivid and, and very 
very alive to me, but I, you know, I wasn't actually actually there. But it it did seem, you know, there's there was a disturbing similarities in the same sort of failure of infrastructure and the same lack of lack of care on the part of the government to really step in, you know, and to to take care of the people um, and to to shore up, you know, basic basic infrastructure, basic human needs. Yeah, and just a, a, a widespread failure of planning and and accountability. You know, it's the the, the similarity is, is to see, you know, what happens when when you have an event, right, hit a city full on to see how easily it it can all fall apart. You know, and to see how little how little investment there is from the organs of uh, political power to 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 protect the people that are most vulnerable in those situations. So let's get to your ideas around that that essay <laughs> that formed uh, the basis for your book. But but first, sort of to set the the bleak stage of, of climate change, which uh, you you spend some time on in your book. Something I found interesting is kind of before you go into the scientific forecast of climate change, you spend quite a bit of time talking about. Um, understanding of climate change from a, from a number of national security and military professionals in, in your book. So yeah. can you uh, lay out what the prognosis is for, from a national security and military perspective? Right. So the Pentagon and the Department of Homeland Security, um, the Pentagon meaning the Department of Defense, um, have put climate change at the center of their, their um, recent um, – national security review uh, documents. Um, and basically their vision of it is that um, it's going to be a profoundly destabilizing force all across the world and, a, and an enormous, a tremendous security challenge to the United States both domestically and and overseas. Um there's a lot of different things we could say about that kind of language and and how it's working, but it's um, it's very alarming to see to to see the the concern and fear in in these you know official U.S. government like high level documents uh, that are setting policy for uh, you know. That are setting policy for the entire military or the entire you know structure of homeland security. Why did you think it was important to to stress that angle? Um, let's say on the same level, or even before the sort of scientific angle. Well, that's partly it's partly that's a an issue of trying to reach people. Uh, partly that's an issue of trying to reach a, a a broader, maybe a broader range, or trying to make the problem of climate change new again. Um, so partly it's a question of trying to like say something that people that can sort of pierce the the noise of our existence and um, can get through to people, uh, you know, because we're all we I think we're used to and we've been used to for a while now like the the more scientific and and um, 
you know, talking about carbon, talking about glaciers, talking about polar bears. Like, yeah, we know that. Um, so to frame it as a security issue is a way to is a way to make it new again. But then there's also the how much the security issue is the way that we're actually going to feel it, the way that we're actually going to that it's actually going to impact our lives because those rising seas and that increasing te- those increasing temperatures and those those um, catastrophic rainstorms and those these changing agricultural yields and these droughts, it's all going to impact us in political ways. It's all going to impact us in populations that are starving or don't have enough water. It's going to impact us uh, in terms of increasing economic uh, inequality. It's going to impact us in terms of uh, a climate of fear and rage and scapegoating because, because in part, you know, it's it's a long it's a long standing human behavior that when we have when we're burdened with some catastrophic problem that we can't solve we find somebody to blame for it you know we find a scapegoat we find a um a sacrifice we go to war you know because that way at least we feel like we have some agency in a situation where we don't that's what our future looks like, and it's, a, it's disturbing. So if, if that's what your, our future looks like, and as you mentioned, climate change uh, is going to cause all these, uh, a massive set of, of problems related to, to food security, national security, energy, um, a whole suite of problems. But you argue in your book that, that the greatest challenge the Anthropocene poses are not those issues, but actually what it means to be human. So wh- what do you mean by that? Well, so there's two, there's two ways uh, that uh, I mean that. There's two main ways that that, that, that manifests. And the first is that, um, in fact, these problems are not new problems, you know, that, that, that we die that life is nasty, brutish, and short, that we're mortal and and it's and living on earth is is un, is insecure. Um, that's not new. That's been an that's an old human problem that we've been thinking about for uh, f- for a long, long time. Um, you know, the the miracles of carbon fueled technological capitalism have allowed us to you know uh forget or repress or ignore the fact that um human life is is um short and contingent on various things and that um you know it's hard <laughs> and but the anthropocene climate change is going to remind us of all that stuff uh which is going to send us back to um, our deeper reflections on on mortality, and this is in, in this way, um, you know, I I I quote uh, Montaigne and and Plato and various other figures from a, the Western philosophical tradition and, and from the Eastern, like Dogen and and others. Um, but it's this it's this Montaigne through Cicero and Plato tradition that says philosophy is the it's the practice of learning how to die. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, 
Well, it can mean that it can be uh, Montana has a very interesting sort of extrapolation of this. I mean, it can mean that uh, philosophy is the practice of reconciling oneself to one's death and accepting it, just like I did in Baghdad, that so that you come to terms with it and you find a way to live uh, the fullest human life you can, knowing that you're mortal. It can also mean, um, and you know, and in that way, it's it, it's in a sense freeing yourself from the worry of death. Um, but it can also mean detaching from uh, detaching from this particular life, this particular instance of of meat and bone, and being able learning to reflect on oneself um, as an instant in. In a, in a process, being able to reflect on oneself as sort of objectively, right, from outside of oneself, as it were, um, and to be able to think about human relations in a kind of abstract way. I think both of those meanings um, are what, what that tradition sort of means, of that philosophy is learning how to die. But in doing that, right, in, in reflecting on oneself abstractly reflect, and on detaching from this particular, from your particular life and your instances meet, you, one of the things you think about is what is it, like, what does it mean to be human? What am I, what am I, this, you know, this talking meat? Like, what, what does it mean to be a human being, you know? And, and it's in that way, that's one of the ways that the Anthropocene, right, poses that question. Um, because what? Because of its immediacy? Because we can see these problems now on our horizon? What is different than just traditionally humans knowing that we encounter suffering, we're going to encounter our own death? What, what does the Anthropocene magnify for us about that? The Anthropocene brings back the fact that, uh, that nature runs the world, not, not us. Right. For the last couple hundred years, we've been really, we've been able to fool ourselves into thinking that we control nature, um, that, you know, because we can fly around the world and, um, you know, do build, build atom bombs and, and, you know, even steam engines. Like we've been, the history of industrial civilization, of car- carbon-fueled industrial civilization is a history of of of, of of coming to terms with this sense of of omnipotence, right? And and you know, and that's you know that has put us uh, you know that's made us think about what it means to be human in, in different ways and and so on and so on. But it hasn't really, you know, it it's allowed it's allowed us to think about being human in ways that can that. Uh, can elide or escape or efface the fact of our mortality, right? In a way that the Anthropocene, right, doesn't, because it's putting it's putting mortality and contingency and determinism de- determination back at the forefront of our consciousness and and reminding us that no, we actually don't we don't run things here. Um, there's a there's a planet that that has its process. Again, that's putting it back into being, you know, what does it mean to be human uh, in that long philosophical tradition of what it means to be human with confronting our mortality, confronting the mortality of our civilization, right? This way of doing things is 
no longer sustainable. It's over. Um, coming in terms of all that, the other the other way is in precisely this question of nature, right? Because for the last the last couple hundred years, right, we've we've relied on this distinction between the human and the natural, right? We have free will, right? We think about things. We're rational. Um, we make decisions, whereas nature just happens. The Anthropocene, I think, really challenges that, um, not least because because of the idea, the very idea of the Anthropocene, right, is that humanity is a global is a is a global geological agent. Like humans are geology, right? That's the idea of the Anthropocene, right? Like the Anthropocene is an er- a geological era defined primarily by the the arrival or the emergence of human beings as a geological force. What does that mean for human agency? You know, what is what does it mean to think of oneself as a as a geological process? Right? None of us decided to dump carbon into the air. None of us decided to to move carbon from the earth into the atmosphere. None of us made that decision. And yet as part of this aggregate humanity, right? Um, the species being or whatever we want to think about it, we did it. And this is precisely the thing. Like species being doesn't quite make sense there. Uh, our, our own individual behaviors don't seem relevant. Um, our ideas of, of free will and rational behavior don't seem particularly relevant. Like there's this way in which recognizing ourselves as, as parts of a of a geological process profoundly challenges our notions of what it what it means to be human that we've been relying on for the last couple hundred years uh you know especially in this way like in this this way that we believe that we're separate from nature we're not we we are different from nature in some fundamental way that's over so you argue that civilization as we know it is effectively already dead yes and so what we need to do is not only learn to die as individuals, which is what you encountered in Iraq, but learn to die as a civilization. Right. So, I mean, I say the civilization is already dead. Uh, in, in a certain sense, I mean it's like in the, you know, in the Warner Brothers cartoons where Wiley e. Coyote goes off the cliff and he's still like running. Um, he just hasn't looked down yet. I think that's part of it. I think we're... You know, we're in a sort of um, carbon-fueled capitalism as we know it is in a kind of like um, zombie, zombie fuck death mode or something where it's just like it's pounding away and it's already, it's just a corpse already. And that's in the sort of Vatic perspective. Taken in a more, in a more reasonable, like, let's be rational beings kind of way. The fact of the matter is that carbon-fueled capitalism as we live in it is not sustainable, right? And because because of the ways that it's not sustainable, you know, vis-a-vis global climate change, it's going to change into something else, right? Even if, like, we magically do, you know, totally rip out all our infrastructure and rebuild it with solar energy and renewables and so on, geothermal. Um, 
that's a whole different, that will be a whole other way of life built around entirely different systems of, of, of energy to entirely different infrastructure, which will then develop an entirely different ideology around it. Things will mean, you know, life will, will be different for us. Or we, you know, if we don't, you know, have that kind of positive transformation, it will be the kind of negative transformation. If it, if it continues, if we keep burning coal and oil, right, we're all, we're all just sunk, like we're done, you know, because it's not just going to get warmer, right? Like if we keep dumping carbon into the atmosphere, it's going gonna, it's gonna to activate uh, an, an out-of-control um, feedback loop uh, of, of warming and heat the planet to, I mean, a level that we've certainly never seen as, as human beings, um, heat, the, heat the planet to a level where, you know, something like the end Permian e- extinction or something where it's just like, you know, the oceans are 200 feet higher and there's no ice at the poles and, or, or worse, you know, we could turn Earth into Venus, right? Who knows? No one's ever done this before. So, um, yeah, so, so it's, so it's dead in, you know, in those ways, which is to say that either whatever happens, like it's not going to keep going on like this. And there's another way in which it's a, it's a, it's a rhetorical move. If I say it's already dead, then I skip over the problem of whether or not we should get rid of capitalism or whether or not, you know, um, or what we should do about capitalism or blah, blah, any of these questions that are so, that seem so um, unhelpful at this point. Like, just, let's just skip all that. Like, it's already dead. Let's just say that. But is is skipping all that almost akin to, you know, this meditation in Iraq that you did every morning for 15 minutes, but then you still had to get into the Humvee and drive around all day? What does that mean? Because even if we make this decision that we need to acknowledge our own death, we still have to keep on living in the current situation that we are in. That's exactly right. So it's it's exactly the same kind of practice, right? Um, and the hope is that accepting that the civilization is already dead can free us up from our need to perpetuate it, our desire to keep things going the way they are going. Right, it can actually hopefully open up new ways of dealing with and adapting to um, this profoundly alarming situation that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, the the more desperately we try to cling to uh, the way of life that we have now, uh, the harder it's going to be for us to adapt to the world that we've created. Sustainability doesn't sustainability mean is suicide if it means sustaining the civilization that we've built now we have to get out of that and so that's the that's part of the idea of saying the civilization's already dead is to to pop over that that the idea that we need to sustain this this civilization no we need to let it go and and find some some new way to just open up open up the possibilities for the way we think about and act in this world. In your book, you really make the case for the importance of the humanities and philosophical humanism Mm 
mm-hmm. in, in particular, as being very useful tools for us humans uh, in dealing with the Anthropocene, equal to or perhaps of even greater importance to tools like engineering and science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Culture is a technology. The, the, the amazing thing that humans do is they create these symbolic structures through which we live collectively, right? Through language. Um, that's culture. Uh, we, we operate together as, as groups. We, um, you know, engage in projects. We, um, you know, we develop science. We build bridges. We're, we become engineers through uh, this ability for collective symbolic reasoning. Cultures are, you know, one of our oldest technologies, and I, I think it's our most powerful technology. And the people of the future, you know, the human beings who are damned to live in the hell that we've created for them, uh, are going to need every all the resources they can to figure out how to live in that world. And so, I'm a I'm a right army humanist. That's this sort of the skill set and the disposition I have. And, and I think one of the things we can do and maybe one of the most important things we can do for them and also for ourselves is to, is to work to be able to pass on the, the, the archive of human technologies uh, for living in the world that is, you know, our, our humanistic culture, Right. Give some examples of that, and what does that provide? What would that provide future generations? What tools would that provide? Uh, the, so, you know, uh, Plato is <laughs> an example. Um, the Bhagavad Gita, the Epic of Gilgamesh. What these technologies provide is tools for thinking, for working through the problem of what it means to be human, and also potential models and structures for building n- new ways of living, like building new human, building new culture. You build new culture with old culture, right? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to build culture. I mean, we, humans can build culture ex nihilo, right? Um, we can do Lord of the Flies, right? But there's, there's so much, there's so many different ways that we've thought about and been human, thought about being human and been human in the world. You know, yam festivals to, um, you know, uh, tea ceremonies to just, we're just the, it's so easy for us to forget in like consumer capitalist life, the insane, beautiful, wonderful richness of human existence. Like there's, we have so many ways of doing things that don't, that aren't about buying stuff and driving around in a car and, and being on Twitter. That all the richness of human possibility, we need to pass as much of that on to the future as we can because they're going to have to build a new way of life. They're not going to be able to do the Twitter and the driving around and the flying on the airplanes. Um, they're going to have to figure out something new. I want to talk about your 2015 piece for the New York Times called We're Doomed, Now What? 
You mentioned in that piece that uh, if you feel that an increasing nihilism is taking hold in American culture, and you reference some of the TV shows in, in particular that are becoming popular. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> what's your question? <laughs> well, I was going to get you to, to riff on that, but but I mean, I, it doesn't... You, 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 set, you set that up for a very specific reason. Yeah. Which is that you want to differentiate your ideas from nihilism because the two could be easily confused from a very cursory reading of what you say that we, you know, that an approach towards climate change of having excessive hope or of having excessive fear is not constructive. And what we need to do is learn to die. But you're saying we don't need to just sit back and accept it. So can you contrast where you sit versus right. a, a feeling of nihilism on the one hand or of extreme hope on the other. Yeah, so so the point I make in that piece about about nihilism, one one of the things I'm trying to distinguish there is is between nihilism as a as an analysis and nihilism as a as a response. Because it's it's certainly and I, I don't think nihilism as an analysis is necessarily uh, is necessarily a problem. You know, to say we're doomed, right? To like confront our mortality, to confront the end of carbon fueled capitalist civilization, um, is to say that there's an end. That at some point this is over, and I don't have a story for how it it goes on after that, right? Like I don't have a story about how the flying spaghetti monster is going to reconstitute my body as one of his appendages, which is, you know, which is to say that I'm I'm being nihilistic about our existence in the world. It happens and then we die and that's it. And in that way, in that sense, I'm totally nihilistic. I don't believe there's a deeper metaphysical meaning to existence that's just there. But we do, but the thing is, we don't have to have someone give us meaning, right? The nihilism of the universe, the fact that meaning doesn't, isn't just handed to us, right, doesn't mean that we don't make meaning. It doesn't mean that life is meaningless because we do make meaning. We tell stories. We, we do this thing called culture, right, that I was talking about. Like, we, that's part of what humans do is they make life meaningful. And we decide how to, we do that. And so that's, and that's why I'm not a nihilist, right? It's because even though there's no meaning given to us, life still has meaning because that's, because that's what we do is we give life meaning. And we need to be conscious about that. And we need to be thoughtful about that. And especially at this, you know, in this time, um, and I do see in the culture, you know, various expressions of both both nihilism as a fact of the universe and nihilism as a action or as a response, saying that well, because because the universe doesn't give us meaning, therefore nothing is life isn't meaningful, and we should just just break something. Um, I think you know, I think that's driving part of this this Trump phenomenon, right? It's like this sense of of fury in a deep way that maybe I won't be able to to adequately defend here. But so that's sort of my point with that. You know, we're that's and and that's even in the time we're doomed now what? 
is to say, you know, yes, the idea of like that that our lives or this system or whatever, like is just meaningful in and of itself or that's given to us is not, that's no longer available. Now what? Now we do it ourselves. We, we decide the meaning. Well, Roy Scranton, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Noah. I appreciate it. It's great to uh, talk with you today. Habitations is a production of Sage Magazine at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies with production help from the Yale Broadcast Center. Roy Scranton's visit to Yale was sponsored by a grant from the FES Class of 1980 Fund. You can subscribe to Habitations in the iTunes Store on our SoundCloud page or through the Yale iTunes U channel. And for more information about Habitations and about Sage Magazine, check out sagemagazine.org slash podcasts. And thanks for listening.